0: Content warning. The following program may contain descriptions of violence and or sexual assault that may be upsetting to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who commit heinous acts. I was born in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. So grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. serve their prison sentence are evaluated at the end of their sentence, and if they're evaluated to to present a high risk of reoffending, they're referred to prosecution to have them committed for treatment uh, at our facility. It's not a prison, but the 238 men and one woman who live here cannot leave without a judge's approval. I've been in treatment since I've been here. That was 17 years ago when convicted child rapist Raymond Marshall was supposed to get out of prison, but a judge ruled it was too risky to release Marshall. And when that happens in Washington, sex offenders are sent to the state's special commitment center for additional treatment. The treatment models now show that isolation doesn't work. It actually hurts people. Uh, And so we don't use it, uh, except for in those very extreme cases. Van Hook says some residents refuse treatment and won't ever be released. Others, he says, will never be considered safe enough. This week, we're headed to Washington, where I'll be telling you about McNeil Island, also known as Sex Offender Island. But first, let's get our PNW town profile. McNeil Island is located west of Stylocum, Washington and north of Anderson Island. It is just 11 miles from Tacoma and about an hour from Seattle. In 1841, it was named after William Henry McNeil, captain of three Hudson Bay steamers. McNeil's name was spelled with two L's at the end. But during a map recording error, there was a difference in the spelling by removing one of the L's that was never corrected, and McNeil Island is spelled with one L to this day. In 1853, Ezra Meeker settled on McNeil Island and sold the property in 1862. The vibrant island saw lots of action when the rugged pioneer settlers were in control of the island. Logging, farming, boating, bootlegging, and brothels, just to name a few of the activities the island was used for. McNeil Island has breathtaking views of the Olympic Mountains, Mount Rainier, and the Cascade Range. In January of 1867, Congress authorized the establishment of a territorial jail in the Washington Territory. After scouting out locations, the federal government purchased 27 acres on McNeil Island in September of 1870, and it took five years to build the facility. Once complete, the penitentiary was under the direction of the United States Marshal. By the end of 1875, there were a total of nine inmates, but the prison would grow considerably and purchase more property throughout the years. And in 1927, an additional 67 acres were purchased for a prison farm to produce fruits and vegetables, bringing the land owned by the prison to just over 2,100 acres, which was a little less than half of the island. In 1932, a gorgeous French Renaissance brick mansion was built as the personal home for the McNeil Penitentiary Warden. The warden at the time was Finch Archer, who was very progressive for his time and strongly believed in rehabilitation for the inmates. So he also had a four-car carriage house constructed, with an apartment above it for the use of inmates who worked at the warden's residence. Both the mansion and carriage house are still in good condition. In 1940, the last land transaction occurred and the entire island was under federal control. By 1947, the population was 320 inmates, and the island provided for itself by raising vegetables, fruit, pork, beef, and milk. The seven-square-mile island would go on to host the employees of the prison and their families. So a man-made lake, a community center, and a school to provide an education to the children residing in the 52 homes on the island were built. And they had a full-functioning community outside of the prison. One notable inmate was Charles Manson, who served a stint on McNeil Island from 1961 to 1966 for federal check forgery. Due to the high operational and maintenance costs atop the much-needed building renovations, the Federal Bureau of Prisons declared the facilities on McNeil Island as obsolete in 1976 and began the process of shutting it down. At the time, the state of Washington was experiencing a shortage in state prison space, and they began to explore the idea of taking over McNeil Island as a state prison. And in 1981, the state signed a lease with the federal government for use of the penitentiary, and the Department of Corrections began moving inmates into the newly renamed McNeil Island Correction Center in April of 1981. The inmates were put to work to fix up the facility, and three years later, the island was deeded to the state of Washington. In 1990, the legislature appropriated $392 million to expand the correction center, and by 1993, the Department of Corrections had built five new medium-security residential units, each housing 256 inmates, and a sixth segregation unit with 129 single cells. The original facility was demolished and replaced in 1994, and taking its place was an inmate services building that included a hospital, education center, recreation room, hobby shop, music room, and gymnasium. In April of 2011, the oldest prison facility in the Northwest and final island-based prison in the nation closed after 136 years. And now, on to our story. Did you know Washington State has one of the most controversial and rare communities in America? I sure didn't, and I thought some of you might not have either. So today I will tell you about McNeil Island, also known as Sex Offender Island. Just about an hour outside of Seattle, the island houses as many as 280 violent sex offenders who have completed their sentences but were found likely to reoffend and committed to McNeil Island. It's not only unique because sex offenders are banned to an island, but also because it was the first of its kind. In 1998, while the state prison was still operating, the state legislature authorized a total confinement facility for sexual predators on McNeil Island. This program was run by the Department of Social and Health Services, and the purpose was to house chronic and violent sex offenders who had been civilly committed after the courts determined they were still a danger to society, after serving their prison sentence. The Special Commitment Center ran alongside the state prison up until 2011, when the federal prison closed down, leaving behind just the Special Commitment Center for Sexual Predators. The way the island currently operates is akin to a modern-day Alcatraz, although the buildings are more of a dorm room situation and less like a prison, although those committed to the facility are unable to leave on their own accord. They do have the option to receive therapy and treatments, and there are some sex offenders who go through a process to eventually be released. Some are partially released into society, where they will be monitored and have rules in place that they must follow to stay off the island, and some sex offenders have even been found to no longer be a danger to society and released into the world with just the usual sex offender protocol, which depends on what level of sex offender they are. The terms of being committed to the McNeil Island facility are open-ended. There aren't timeframes or sentences handed down. Each person is evaluated on progress and their likelihood to reoffend. Each resident is given a daily routine and they must pitch in with the building maintenance as well. The sexual predators are able to walk freely to and from their classes and around the facility that looks surprisingly similar to a college campus. As for employees and visitors, A ferry arrives and departs every two hours, and they are bused from the ferry to the facility. And along the way, they see the ghost town of what used to be when prison officials, guards, and employees also used to inhabit the island. One of the more shocking details to me is that even though these sex offenders have committed violent crimes in the past, and they were deemed likely to do so again, the guards do not carry guns. They rely on razor fencing and 200 security cameras to maintain order. These civil confinement centers occur in less than half of the U.S. states. The story behind the creation of the first sex offender island traces back to September of 1988 when 29-year-old Diane Bellaciotes was abducted, raped, and murdered by Jean Raymond Kane, a convicted sex offender who had just been released from prison to a work release center. Following Diane's death, there were two other disturbing sexual assaults by different offenders, which fueled public outcry, leading the governor to sign the Community Protection Act of 1990. The act was a package of laws aimed at sex offenders, which included tougher sentences, a sex offender registration, and the creation of a procedure that allowed authorities to indefinitely lock up sex offenders when a court believed they were a threat to the community. Since then, 19 other states have enacted similar laws, causing more than 5,200 people to be civilly committed in the U.S. in 20 civil commitment centers. About half of those states allow the commitment of individuals who offended as juveniles. Many committed are diagnosed with general paraphilia, a condition in which a person's sexual arousal and gratification depends on atypical behavior. Like I said, offenders are offered many types of therapies, and some are more cooperative than others, about putting in the work. About 62% of offenders agree to the treatment, and there is an annual review of each person on the island. During the review, each person is given a polygraph, and they're also given a test that is designed to measure sexual arousal. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. true crime podcast recommendation that I think upper left corner listeners will love. Based on the evidence is a mother-son podcasting duo that tackles interesting cases. It's tricky to mix humor with heavy topics, but they're able to pull it off nicely. It makes listening to gruesome details easier to handle. They cover cases with a conclusion, so I love that I can make predictions along the way and in the end have an answer whether the suspect was found guilty or innocent. This mom son duo are relationship goals. It's fun to hear their interactions and personal stories. You start to feel like you know them. You can listen to over 40 episodes of Based on the Evidence Today on all major podcast platforms. Blossom Boutique is the best place to shop online for women and kids' clothing. There are so many great graphic tees, sweatshirts, and cute outfits for kids. It's hard for me to narrow it down to a few favorites to tell you about. Girl has you covered if you need a free Britney shirt. In fact, she has multiple to choose from. How about a cute mom shirt? She has a tie-dye Happy Mama shirt. Or maybe you need a hot mom summer tee. There are so many fun designs and sayings to choose from, including One Tree Hill-themed spooky schools and creepy sayings. For the littles in your life, she has adorable tie-dye sets, shirts with fun sayings, and the most adorable fruit-themed swimsuits for the little lady in your life. Go check out Blossom Boutique at BlossomBoutique.com. That's BlossomBoutique Boutique with an extra E at the end. And just for being an upper left corner listener, you can use code CRIME15 to get an extra 15% off. The website and promo code will be in my show notes for you. Happy shopping! and now back to the story. One resident on McNeil Island is Richard Curtis, who is responsible for many horrific crimes. He has been convicted of one first-degree rape while two others had been dropped, as well as a second-degree assault and nine victims for which he was never charged for. Curtis claims to have been rehabilitated because of the therapy provided on the island, and he is of the opinion that he is ready to leave the island to resume a normal life. In an interview with Inside Edition, Curtis was asked, You are willing to tell me that when you get out, if I live next door to you, there is not a 1% chance that you would ever hurt me. And Curtis's response was, I can't say that. While I actually appreciate the honesty, there is no way I would want him living near me or my family. Dennis Breedlove was deemed one of the worst of the worst sexually violent predators who lives on McNeil Island. He has spent a lot of time taking online classes, but chose not to enroll in the treatment program. However, in his interview with Inside Edition, he agreed he should be on the island, saying, quote, I imagine it would be considered necessary for the protection of the community. Calvin Malone worked as a Boy Scout troop leader in several states in the 70s and 80s, as well as an organization for at-risk youth. While in these roles, he molested numerous boys and was convicted of sex crimes in Washington, Oregon, and California. He also had a heroin addiction, all of which caused him to spend over 20 years in prison for his crimes, during which he learned about Buddhism from a magazine. He began meditating and reaching out to Buddhists outside of prison, and he also underwent sex offender therapy. He says he now takes responsibility for his actions and that he was regretful for them. The first female sex offender to be civilly committed to McNeil Island was Laura McCollum in 1995. I'm going to give you a trigger warning for child sexual abuse. I'm not going to go into graphic detail, but I'm going to give some background as to what got McCollum civilly committed. The crime that she served time in prison for was sexually and physically assaulting a baby girl from the time she was 18 months old, spanning over a period of two years. She served five and a half years at Purdy Women's Prison in Gig Harbor before being committed to McNeil. While in treatment, McCollum admitted to sexually assaulting other children starting around the age of 10, mostly her foster siblings. She had been removed from the care of her biological parents for child abuse and went on to grow up in the foster care system, where she claimed she was abused by her foster parents. She also disclosed other crimes against children of all ages and genders, and as an adult, her M.O. was that she targeted distressed and substance-abusing parents or single mothers and offered childcare as a way to get access to children, which is just so disgusting. But wait, it gets worse. She also admitted to sexually assaulting her own newborn daughter in 1985. She ended up giving the baby up for adoption, along with all other children that she would birth. McCollum was diagnosed with numerous mental illnesses once she was committed to McNeil Island. She was kept separate from the men and accepted treatment for her behaviors. In 2019, she was led off the island under a conditional release to Pierce County. At the time, she was required to have two chaperones to be with her in the community. Court records show that she mostly complied with the restrictions there, but she did get in trouble for receiving a gift and also when she inadvertently accessed the internet on her phone. She requested to move to Spokane and petitioned for an unconditional release, and her therapist wrote that McCollum, quote, appears to be demonstrating an increased durability since her return to the community, and that she continuously expressed a desire to follow the rules. A Spokane attorney also deemed that McCollum no longer meets the definition of a sexually violent predator, And she was released to the Spokane area on April fourteenth, 2020 as a level 3 sex offender. She was 61 years old at the time of her release and I could not find any further news articles about her following her release so hopefully she has been rehabilitated and will not offend again. In theory, Sex Offender Island sounds like an ideal scenario, right? Protecting communities and letting sex offenders live a life outside of an official prison while also receiving services However, like everything in this political climate, there is an argument against McNeil Island. Many of the inmates do not want to be on the island, but it is not their choice as they have been civilly committed, even after serving their prison sentence, and many are detained in the facility for the remainder of their lives. Also, the cost to house each resident is roughly around $185,000 a year per resident, which is about five times the average cost to incarcerate a prisoner, And since releasing a resident is rare, there is no real way to prove that the treatment is effective. Whatever your stance on McNeil Island is, I personally found it fascinating and feel like now is a great time to go over some safety tips. My podcast listenership sits at just over 80% females, so that means a good portion of my listeners have seen some things when it comes to personal safety, whether something bad or scary has happened or you worry that it might Here are a few tips that I personally use, aside from the basics that I'm sure you know, like don't walk alone at night, stay in well-lit areas, etc. So, change your GPS location in your car to a business or nearby address as your home address. If your car is broken into, the Prowler then has your home address. Do not post check-ins on social media until after you have left. You are telling the world exactly where you are and also telling them that you are not at home, leaving your house vulnerable for a break-in. I always hold off on posting about our vacations until after we are home and make it clear that we have arrived back home. If you listen to My Favorite Murder, you are probably already scarred for life from a story that was told on that podcast. But when staying in a hotel, Cover the Peephole, as many of them can look into the room or be easily flipped around to do so. When walking in public, be alert. If you're walking to your car, don't have your head buried in your phone or fumbling through your purse for your keys. Have those things in your hand before you are walking into a possibly vulnerable situation. Speaking of keys, if you leave your key fob next to your nightstand while you sleep, you can hit the panic button if you suspect someone is breaking in. Hopefully, it would spook them enough to make them leave or alert a neighbor to call for help to check things out. And although it's always preferred to voice dial 911, in some areas, you are now able to text 911. If you visit canitext911.us, you can input your phone carrier and zip code and it will tell you if the service is available in your area. It's not currently available in my small town, but I'll link it in my show notes so you can find out if it's an option for you. So there are a few ideas, and I'd love to hear more. I'll post a discussion starter on this topic on my Instagram for you to post your best safety tip. And that is Washington State's McNeil Island, a.k.a. Sex Offender Island. I am so excited for my next episode, guys. I have a special guest coming on who was a complete badass in a traumatic situation that took place in North Bend, Washington. She is going to tell her story, talk about her recovery, and we are going to discuss personal safety and also women's intuition and trusting your gut. I cannot wait. This week's wine that I paired with my true crime is Chateau St. Michel's Rosé. This rosé is a dry and elegant style wine that is a beautiful pale pink. The fresh and lively wine offers bright aromas of watermelon and raspberry with flavors of wild strawberry, citrus zest, and hints of melon. I split this bottle with some friends at a barbecue, and we all agreed it was delicious. Cheers, and thanks for listening. Upper Left Corner, a PNW true crime podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five star rating and review and share it with a friend. All of the sources for this episode are listed in the show notes and at upperleftpodcast.com. While you are there, check out the Support Victim Causes tab to find the way you can help the victims' families or take a peek at my merch. You can follow me on Instagram at Upper Left Corner Pod. If you have a case suggestion or a PNW wine recommendation, please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.